welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by the Bundesliga's biggest fan. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hi. Yes, any soccer coming back I'm a big fan of. So yeah, right now, Bundesliga, you're my friend. So the news today, right? The news was sort of this morning here in the US when I woke up was that Germany are easing restrictions. Uh, Shops are going to be open, for example, provided the social distancing and people wear face masks. And among all those reopenings, the Bundesliga was included. The Bundesliga will be playing games behind closed doors. They will. Uh, initially, there was going to be a longer wait, or that was proposed by Angela Merkel. The club's kind of stuck to their guns, and it looks like it can reopen as early as May 15th. They can push back a week if need be, but that does seem to be the date that the Bundesliga and the clubs are targeting. We'll find out tomorrow. So there's a Bundesliga General Assembly that's going to be held in Frankfurt on Thursday, mm-hmm. and th- then they'll, they'll discuss the health and safety protocols, um, and they were expect- it's expected that they will decide on a specific date for the return but it's very likely either the 15th or the 22nd it is and then the other issue to be resolved as as i understand it is basically the plan for how they're going to play all these games uh they're going to have to have some midweek games they're going to have to stagger things a little bit uh and then as far as i understand there are three basic plans for kind of resuming the schedule or changing the schedule if need be so yeah, I looked at what the um, what the schedule looks like. If it if we restart on the fifteenth, then we'll be restarting on the final match day, match day thirty four, mm-hmm. um, and then I assume they'll have to go back to the start, right? That's the second um, plan, yeah. Yeah. So the the thing we left off with was match day twenty five had just ended, and it would make sense to me to pick up with match day twenty six, right? Not least because honestly, match day twenty six is a lot more exciting than match day thirty four. That is <laughs> match the problem. Day- Match day 26 has Dortmund v Schalke. Why is that a problem? Be- I want to watch Dortmund v Schalke. Because they don't want people gathering. And the fear oh. is that those two teams, because it's a rivalry, you will get people outside of the stadium or try to attend it. That's why they're, I believe uh, Hanukstein was reporting that they are trying to get Sky to basically show that game for free. So then, because Sky have the rights for the Bundesliga uh, in, in Germany. And so they're hoping that if they give it for free, then maybe people will be more inclined to stay home. I, clubs do favor that one. That is the one that they want to do is just pick up where they left off. But there's concern. Concerns yeah. about some fan interaction, whereas, yeah, I think matching 34, it's a lot of maybe less <laughs> exciting games, so you wouldn't get as much uh, or as many people out in the streets. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Um, I'm, I mean, you could argue that if there's concerns about people going out in the streets, maybe this isn't worth doing. But I, That's I a guess good point. <laughs> this is part of the learning curve, right? Yeah. This is part of the Bundesliga going first, is they are sort of taking... All their mistakes are going to be the things that other leagues learn from. So they're really taking a big risk by doing this. But I understand why they're doing it. I mean, they, they are. I think the the point that you made there in the very beginning is very important. Because the way this got talked about initially, and some people put out content about how maybe this was irresponsible or not a very good idea. And I think that's because we're reading it from a soccer perspective. Whereas, as you already hit upon, like you have playgrounds reopen with some sort of like social distancing measures in place. Hairdressers, stores, that sort of thing is coming back. So it's not as though the Bundesliga is getting some special distance dispensation or anything like yeah. that. They certainly are having to work with the government and the local governments, but it's not as though they're opening it up and everybody else is locked down still. Yeah, it's part of a wider easing of restrictions. Right. Yeah, it's not a full return to normal, but they're just easing things up a little bit because I believe Germany has sort of one of the lowest fatality rates um, mm-hmm. for for all the countries in Europe, right? So, yep. uh, And I think they've got the R number uh, well below one. The R <laughs> number is that all important. What's yeah. it called? Like the reinfection, reinfection number? Yeah, I think so. Sure. Oh, okay. So um, I guess we'll just uh, we'll report more news when we have it, right? But ke- mm-hmm. keep an eye on the news tomorrow. You, we should find out the uh, the start date for all those Bundesliga games. I've made the assumption, Taylor, that 
um, Fox Sports, Fox Sports One, Fox Sports Two will be showing these games in the US because they they have the rights. I assume they still have the rights. I would hope so uh, because I'm very much looking forward to watching those games, uh, even with Same. no fans, even probably from the the comfort of my own home. Maybe not in the studio quite yet, but yeah, any soccer, any live sports, I'm I'm pretty excited to see. And lots of Americans who had injuries. We mm-hmm. hope all their injuries are healed up, right? So we could be seeing McKenney and Adams and Sargent and all our favorites, all our favorites back in action. And of course, we'll be reviewing it here on the Total Soccer Show. Imagine sure having games to review, Taylor. It feels like it's been, it feels like it wasn't going to happen. I remember like when we first started doing the English game, I was like, well, it could be until September we're doing this. So hopefully the content holds out. <laughs> oh, speaking of, we got some feedback on uh, the International mm-hmm. Champions Champions Cup of History sponsored by Bill and Ted Face the Music. Correct. Um, and response has been positive. People are enjoying it. So that's that's a relief to hear because we put a lot of work into that. Uh, and you forgot to include the first, e- the first ever annual 2020. I did not. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we'll do this one again. I think we'll have it pretty so- much settled at this point. Some omissions are deliberate. Um, on, today's, <laughs> on today's Total Soccer Show, yeah. we'll be answering mm-hmm. a wide array of listener questions. Just as a quick sampling, there's Ronaldo versus Messi. There's what if Diego Maradona played for the United States? Into um, it. Which players do Everton wish they hadn't sold? All kinds coming up for you. What jobs would we be doing if we weren't podcasting, Taylor? There's, there's also that coming for you. Um, before we get into today's questions, um, we sort of owe an apology mm-hmm. to someone who asked a very good question not so long ago. Um, her name is Abby Freed. Abby asked us, um, what are some great transfers that didn't happen? And I think I texted you, this is such a great idea. We should do a whole show about it. And then Ryan and I did. And then Ryan and you did. <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, I mean, I don't want to throw you under the bus here, but you kind of forgot to mention that it was Abby's question. So um, a salute to Abby for a question so good. We had to do a whole show about it. And thank you for the Ned Stark butt. I appreciate that. <laughs> So thank you, Abby. Abby, if you somehow didn't hear that show, um, it was this past Monday, right? Um, you've got to get past Ryan insulting the city of Blackburn for the first five minutes. Mm-hmm. After that, <laughs> Ryan and Taylor get into some really good uh, transfers that didn't happen. Yeah, ideally, uh, Abby not from Blackburn or a Blackburn fan. Otherwise, she's probably going to turn that episode off real fast. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> All right, today's first question, Taylor. Today's first question comes from Christian Ott. Christian Ott asks... At what point did the Ronaldo versus Messi debate start to occur? Mm-hmm. When did it become clear that these two were going to go down as two of the best to have ever played? As far as I'm aware, Taylor, this has always been happening and will always happen. Yeah. The Ronaldo Since, versus yeah, Messi debate. The Big Bang, and then immediately there was a sports planet arguing about which one of these two is best. <laughs> And uh, there was another guy arguing about LeBron versus Jordan. Obviously, obviously. I kind of think uh, uh, Christian is asking two sort of different questions here. I think you could answer them both at the same date if you wanted to, but I think there's sort of two different answers. Because to me, the debate starts around 2008, 2009. When it moves to that, like, these are two of the best ever playing against each other, it really is when they're both in La Liga, Ronaldo with Madrid, Messi with Barcelona, because you have that level of frequency of them playing each other that I think it elevates it from who's better to are they two of the best and if so who's better uh, and that also coincides with them being the main rivals for the Ballon d'Or right, right? so if you look at the, the Ballon d'Or winners Kaká wins it in 2007 mm-hmm. after that it's really the Ronaldo Messi show with the brief Luka Modric pop up in 2018 yeah <laughs> but it's it, it was a decade um, and it's still mm-hmm. going on of Ronaldo versus Messi I would say Taylor in yep. many ways you can look at this debate as a marketing ploy. Um, and if you look at it in that context, it really starts the first time they play each other. 
And I think we've ended up around the same date because yeah. they first played each other in a 2008 Champions League semi-final when Ronaldo was at Man United mm-hmm. and Messi was at Barcelona and had been playing for at least two or three seasons at this point. And I think it was really marketed as, oh, who's the best? There's these two great players going up against each other, right? Um, actually, then 2009, actually, there's the I Champions League final. Actually, I that, if you don't mind oh, me really? jumping in for a moment. Yeah, yeah. because the, the reason why I didn't have that is because that's the one where like uh, Manchester United advance, I think, 1-0 over two legs. They score uh, at Barcelona, but that's seen as a like weak sort of rebuilding Barcelona. And so I see that as like Man United in their prime, like as strong as they were, with Ronaldo being very strong versus Barcelona, with Messi being very good, but not like at that next level. And then the season after is when we see Guardiola Messi really kick into high gear. Okay, well, let's settle on 2009 then, because the 2009 Champions League final was Manchester United with Ronaldo in the lineup Mm -hmm. against uh, Guardiola's Barcelona with Messi in the lineup. And I'll guarantee, just from memory, that that a lot of the marketing for that game was Ronaldo versus Messi and who's the best. And that's why I still would argue it's a marketing ploy, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so... After that game, obviously, Ronaldo moves to Real Madrid. And then it's constant Clásicos, right? It's Messi versus Ronaldo, Madrid versus, uh, sorry, Barcelona versus Madrid. And part of the marketing around that game becomes who's the best, Ronaldo versus Messi. So let's pinpoint 2009 then. I'll concede that maybe 2008 is a little early. Let's pinpoint 2009 Champions League final, uh, Ronaldo in a Man United jersey. And then that bleeds into uh, Ronaldo moving to Real Madrid and then the constant Clásicos that have only just let up. Yes. Yeah. And man, I forget about some of those, like the Madrid fi- or the uh, Mourinho finger poke. Forgot that happened in there, or at least mm-hmm. haven't thought about that in a while. But yeah, that those classicos really elevated that uh, marketing slash uh, media gimmick. They certainly did. It, re- it really does drive interest in the games, right? Uh-huh. To put these two big uh, famous names um, on the billboard. And really... I don't want to say inventor rivalry, but I don't think they ever really said anything about each other uh, for a long, long time, right? It was a lot of a media narrative that there was any sort of rivalry. It was just sort of us watching, trying to mm-hmm. decide who's the best because that drives drives eyes towards viewing. I think I, think I may be like giving Messi too much credit here. I could be wrong, but I do feel like though it is a very media-driven narrative, I do think Ronaldo cares about it a lot more than Messi does. And that might just be, again, because Messi has this sort of uh, story arc of like, you know, the good nature, the very humble, has lunch with his brother and his wife, and they're all very friends and whatever. But like Ronaldo, watching the 2009 Champions League final again, and just seeing how focused he is on clearly like cementing his status as Ballon d'Or, he wins it in 2008, Messi wins it in 2009. I feel like that's Ronaldo trying so very hard, whereas Messi's just being messy and then scoring a header and, and just yeah. uh, sort of just being kind of uh, calm about the whole thing, even though I'm sure privately he was very intense about it all. I mean, I'm sure behind the scenes, these guys are very competitive and very driven. Yeah. I'm sort of relearning that, watching the, the last dance, the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan thing, uh, where there are a lot of, there's a lot of Michael Jordan talking about how things people said about maybe him not being as good as Johnson or Bird, like really did drive him to like prove things individually. Mm-hmm. So the athletes do pay attention to this stuff. They do. They they do. And I think, though they don't talk about it publicly, when you look at some of the Ballon d'Or voting, and it's like Messi's teammates, if they get to vote uh, for like for their respective national teams, they tend to not have Ronaldo on their list, and Ronaldo's teammates vice versa. So there is a yeah. little bit of that sort of like, ooh, I feel like behind closed doors, some things are said for sure. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the voting for the Ballon d'Or, it ends up being yeah. quite petty. And it really just does. Vo- voting for your friends and, and voting in the interests of your friends, even yep. if that becomes somewhat tactical. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Real friends or money friends. It could be either one, but it definitely influences voting for sure. 
So we're going to settle on 2009 then? I'm good with that, yes. All right, and then it really kicks into high gear that same year because of Ronaldo's uh, move to Real Madrid. Although we all secretly know he was already basically a Madrid player that whole Mm -hmm. year. Yeah, it's it's strange to think about because I remember thinking like like think about this game and being like, oh yeah, we all knew that was happening. We absolutely did not, but everybody else did. Not at the time. Mm-mm. Not at the time. Um, all right, Taylor. Before we move on, today's show is sponsored by Hydrant. It is um, Hydrant. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. I do some of those things, but not everyone has time to do it all. See, I feel relieved already. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Uh, is is meditation waking up and immediately uh, checking Reddit and scrolling on my phone for like thirty minutes? Because if so, I meditate really, really well. What I don't scrolling, do scrolling is a form of meditation. I'm that's what sure. I've always said. I've done some mindfulness. I think that counts but what i will say is that it's probably better to start uh hydrating and and getting that water in you getting those electrolytes getting all those different uh things you might need the essential electrolytes into your body and and hydrant allows you to do that really easily and kind of kind of tastefully as well because it (laughs) tastes pretty good it gets you going it kind of wakes you up and helps you scroll through the internet if that's going to be your approach (laughs) <laughs> that's your big exercise for the day yeah I like has to, your finger ever cramped when you were having hydrant daryl i don't think I'm, it has i'm picturing you with giant thumb muscles right now <laughs> <laughs> so hydrant is essentially flavored electrolyte packets that you mix directly into your water Hot to thumbs. make hydrating your body easy and delicious it's backed by research it's mm-hmm. not just made up the formula was developed by oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced efficient hydration that's right it's backed by good stuff not bad stuff like uh synthetic colors <laughs> or artificial sweeteners none of that in there instead it's that, vegan daryl is vegan. that your tagline uh, hydrant good stuff not bad stuff yeah exactly and <laughs> good stuff not bad stuff and not the bad guys from the marvel movies that's their slogan i think we're definitely not them we're definitely not them Um, for 25 (laughs) percent off your first order go to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code soccer that's Mm -hmm. hydrant.com enter the promo code soccer at checkout for 25 percent off your first order one more time that's drinkhydrant.com and the promo code is soccer for 25 percent off your first order thank you very much to hydrant for sponsoring this episode of the total soccer show thank you very much to eldon hasic uh uh, who asked our next listener question, would the U.S. men's national team have won the World Cup if it had 1986 peak Diego Maradona as a one-man army of one uh, of its prior teams? Excuse me, <laughs> as a one-man army, one of its prior teams? In one of its prior teams? On one of its prior Thank teams. Thank you. Uh, who does he replace and on which year? 94, 2002, 2010, 2014? No, 98? You're not going to throw 98 in there, I Alden? Think, I think Alden was just making suggestions for yeah. us there. I think mm-hmm. we're free to choose any year that we want. I would not go 98. I'll say that up front. I'm going to say no. I yes. don't think there was ever the talent in a US team that could surround Maradona and Maradona win the World Cup. Yes. I know there's the there's the theory of 1986 was a one man show, but as an example, so we watched the recent we recently watched on Soccer mm-hmm. 101 uh, England versus Argentina 1986, right? The striker who played ahead of Diego Maradona, not ahead in terms of being picked, but, you know, just ahead of him and Maradona played underneath him in the formation, um, was Jorge Valdano, mm-hmm. who played for Real Madrid. Yeah. Right? So we can't field any of these US teams and have him playing alongside a Real Madrid striker, just no. as an example. You know, it, it is the case, though, that, like, that team did have a very strong, like, rigid defensive approach, which I think the United States could somewhat pull off, and then that would allow him the freedom. But I think you're correct that... 
there are some similarities there that maybe help the United States make it further in the tournament. But I don't think that they yes. have those finished products that you need to balance out the team aside from just having Diego Maradona go at five people at once. So which team would you put him in to get the mm-hmm. best out of him, even if we don't end up winning the World Cup? I have two answers for very different reasons. I would yeah, say let's get both of them. Uh, I, I don't have the 94 team, and I can explain why later, unless you have them, in which case I look forward to it. I would Just say tell me the teams you do have. Tell me the teams you do have. Two, uh, okay. because I would put him in, in potentially like the support striker role that Donovan was in against Mexico. That feels like a, a role Maradona would have appreciated, but I think Bruce Arena, that era Bruce Arena with that team, probably could have found a way to sort of build around him without making it entirely about Diego Maradona. And I think 2014, Jurgen Klinsmann absolutely would have built his entire team around Diego Maradona if the situation allowed for it. And I think he would have gone with that sort of get everybody very defensive and then get the ball to Maradona and let him do things in the attack. Again, I think you run into the problem of the depth of talent there, but I still think the entire team being built around him uh, allows him to flourish a bit more. I have the exact same answers. There we go. I do. So (laughs) I went for 2002 and I just basically said playing um, underneath Brian McBride would be the way to go. What's really interesting is uh, Arena, he played various formations, right? There was the 3-5-2 in the knockout round games um, and there was like a more of a a simple 4-4-2 uh, during the early stages. And there was a combination of Donovan played under McBride, Wolf played alongside McBride, Clint Mathis played Mm -hmm. underneath Brian McBride. But I think we can sort of scratch all of those guys and put Diego Maradona underneath Brian McBride, the target striker. And I imagine a nice sort of, I would call it a 4-4-1-1 or a 4-4 Maradona one, uh, where you maybe have, say, Rayner and O'Brien as the two central midfielders, uh, maybe Donovan and Beasley out wide, some young legs running up and down, and then Maradona underneath Brian McBride. That would, that's a team that I would enjoy watching, I think. I agree. I agree entirely. I think that that probably is the best answer, is that 2002 team, which shouldn't be such a surprise since they did make it to the quarterfinals. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, maybe they only still make it to the quarterfinals, maybe the semifinals, but uh, because it was a bit of a like a bump along the way, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like they were even unbeaten during that tournament, for example, on the way to the quarterfinals. They have to, what, Korea has to draw in the final minutes for them to advance at all. So yeah, yeah, it was pretty close, pretty tight. Um, so in 2014, yep. um, we had the problem of Josie Altidore got injured mm-hmm. in the first, what, 20 minutes against Ghana. Um, Aaron Johansson wasn't good to go and Julian Green was too young to play. Yep. Really good roster construction there, Hecklinsman. Um, so we ended up with Dempsey as our centre forward and Michael Bradley playing as the number 10 sort of mm-hmm. underneath him, right? Um, I think I would restructure the team if we got Diego Maradona in there and have Dempsey as the centre forward with Diego Maradona alongside him and then like a, a midfield three underneath of Beckham and Jones and Bradley. I think that's a nice platform for Maradona to be to play to be playing on top of. And then I'm really excited for the Deuce Diego <laughs> combo up front. Um, I am as well. I that's that is the other reason. Thank you for mentioning it because I forgot to why I really like that 2014 squad because as I said, Klinsman I think would build it all around him. But I also think Clint Dempsey would really enjoy Diego Maradona. <laughs> I might be entirely <laughs> wrong. I don't know Clint Dempsey personally. But that feels like a type of player he grew up respecting and idolizing to some extent. And I imagine getting to play with him, we might see Clinton Dempsey hit a new level because he wants to impress uh, Diego Maradona or make that partnership really, really effective. We better hope that's the way it goes, because if they fall out, then there's going to be all sorts of trouble. Yes, that is (laughs) that would not be ideal. Uh, You mentioned uh, like the kind of the sort of confusion of that team because we had injuries and players who went but maybe didn't need to or didn't end up playing. And then I did have uh, Julian Green missing out, but I kind of forgot Aaron Johansson didn't feature at all. Yeah. So, and nor did Mix disgrew. Is that correct? Or did, did Mix get a couple minutes there at some point? 
I don't think Discrude played. So either one of them, I guess you could you could swap out for Diego Maradona. For the 2002 team, I, I had a much harder time with who I was omitting. You, you went with oh, like from a, the roster. Yeah, a list of people. Uh, was there anybody in particular that you thought you would be okay to cut? Like Steve Trendelow doesn't play very much in that competition or at all because he gets the injury. But I still kind of want him there because then he can tell stories to us on the show. I don't know. Um, maybe we do a North Korea thing and only take two goalkeepers and hope FIFA lets us get away with it. I'm fine with that. Let's put Diego Maradona in goal. Let's just say he's a goalie. Why not? <laughs> Why did neither of us choose 2010? Because that mm-hmm. Bob Bradley 2010 World Cup team really was, I think, one of the one of the most impressive US teams that's gone to a World Cup. I have a specific reason why I didn't choose to put Diego in there, but I'm interested to hear what yours is first. Um, I mean, mine will not be as specific as yours, but I guess a lot of it for me was rooted in dealing with uh, Maradona, not Diego, but Maradona, and the sort of problems that 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 presents. And in some ways, I feel like Bob Bradley is sort of no-nonsense to the point of, like, that might not be as effective of a pairing. They might not love working together. I also don't know how much Bob Bradley would be willing to, like, change everything to fit Diego Maradona. I think he's capable of it because I think he's a very good coach. But those are my two sort of drawbacks as to why it wasn't 2010 straight away. There also be a weird... um paradox reality thing where Maradona's coaching Argentina at the time. <laughs> so there'd be two Maradonas. Yeah, um, I wouldn't go with 2010 Maradona in that 2010 squad. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, the, the reason I thought is, we've talked before about the structure of that um, that Bradley team, the 4-2-2-2, and how he ended up with the attacking the, the attacking creative players with Donovan and Dempsey, Dempsey, who were essentially asked to play a sort of left-mid, right-mid, but then drift-inside role. Um, I really like the structure of that team. I don't think it works with having Diego Maradona replace mm-hmm. one of those guys, right? You essentially yeah. have to rip up everything that Bradley was doing and find a way to build it around Maradona being able to roam wherever he wants. I think Bob Bradley would do that because that's what any good coach would do with peak Maradona. But it's not the same 2010 team. Then it's something no. you have to rethink entirely. And um, we'd need Bob Bradley to do that rethinking, not me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's why I didn't answer it in such depth, because I was like, I don't know how he'd do it. Um, and then the one that immediately jumped out to me was 1994. That was it. Like, initially, that was my first answer when I went through these questions last night, because they, they feel like a sort of, like, 94, maybe because of the people we've talked to or whatever, they've taken on sort of like a punk rock identity in my mind. Of yeah. like They were just sort of like, they'll scrap, they'll fight, everybody works as hard as they can. They're living off French fries. So I guess we've moved into Motley Crue territory. But, like, they, like they're... They're not really like like loved or respected, and so there is this sort of chip on their shoulder that I think there certainly was with Diego Maradona. The problem would be that you have that whole period where they're basically not professionals. They're playing as a national team. They're playing all those games. They become very closely knit, and it's all about kind of sacrificing for the greater good. That's not a thing I would say about Diego Maradona, and I could see him rubbing a lot of people the wrong way and there being some uh, fractions in the locker room or fractures in the locker room and then maybe some outright fights. Like, Winalda versus Maradona feels like it's got a fist fight in there somewhere. It's also a potential strike partnership, though. It is. It is. <laughs> it would Are be one of those like love-hate relationships where they like yeah. fight all the time and then they destroy the opposition. <laughs> Are you ready for another U.S. men's national team theme question? I sure am. This is a really good one from Adam Sportsman. Adam asks, would the current U.S. men's national team qualify for the 2022 World Cup if they were put in the CAF qualifiers, mm-hmm. the African Federation? Yep. Uh, my answer to the last question was probably not. My answer to this question is probably not. Why so? 
I think there, it's a two-part thing. One part would be due to talent and the kind of lack of depth, especially uh, up front. We've talked about that plenty. Uh, but then the sort of nature of qualifying in Africa, because it's the United States, we're flying to Africa. That would be kind of tough. Uh, but more to the point would be the way they've gone back to the, you've got to win your group, and then once you win the group, do you qualify? Yeah. No, you've got to do a home-and-away playoff. And playoffs are really, really tricky against li- likely very strong opposition that could be going to a World Cup. And I think the United States would probably struggle with that format so yeah here's the way i see it is similar to you taylor i think you could make a really convincing argument that the u.s men's national team um could be one of the top five teams if they were put into the uh confederation of african football Mm -hmm. um but a lot of teams or a lot of really good teams miss out from africa every world cup because five spots are not enough Mm -hmm. for for the african federation i think that there's always good teams miss out because africa don't get enough spots going to the world cup um, and the reason that teams miss out is because of that setup, right? You have 10, 10 groups of four. You have to win your group. And then after you win your group, you've got a home and away playoff um, amongst those 10 teams. And only the winners get to go. Uh, Bob Bradley found this out, right? He when he, uh, he went, he had a really great group stage with Egypt, faced Ghana in the playoff because that's the way the draw went and lost over two legs to Ghana. Um, I just think it's, it's much more difficult, that situation. And there's much more talent vying for not enough spots compared to CONCACAF where you often get a team like Panama who maybe aren't good enough to compete once they get there but there's just enough spots in CONCACAF to get you there yeah and and even with Panama like you go to Panama that's a good shout Daryl but it's also a safe shout because you can sort of realistically expect them if you're going with the hex format they're going to be in that in that sort of six team competition whereas with Africa you do have your uh, like, you know, perennial heavyweights, but you also have lots of teams that kind of pop up and have these three or four players who are really good, and then they have this one run where they make it to a World Cup. And I think you've got lots more talent across the board in Africa, and you do have sort of top to bottom, I think, stronger teams overall. So even if the United States and you get gr- drawn into a seemingly decent group, there's still a chance that you're going up against a weak team plus Obama Yang, or previously, like, you get Togo, but Togo has Emmanuel Adebayor, that can be enough sometimes. So I yeah. think that would be the other sort of hiccup the United States would have to deal with is the uncertain nature of African qualifying versus the sort of standard we can expect to make the hex and then we'll see what happens from there uh, aspect of CONCACAF qualifying. You can even, I looked at the um, the current groups in Group D right now, Cameroon and Ivory Coast yep. are in the same group. Only one of them will then will get to go to the playoffs and then they have to face another group winner. Mm-hmm. The road is really tough, right? It's really it's, tough. And it's not even that like I don't think our national team is good enough. I'm quite excited about the Greg Berhalter um, national team and the youngsters coming through and the style of play. Uh, but you take all that and like you think of the troubles we have um, going on the road in Concacaf. Yeah. I mean every I mean every other game is going to be on the road in Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a, a continent that U.S. players are not familiar visiting. So it's going to be a whole new experience. I I would bet against them, unfortunately. I think we should be forced to play all of our home games in Liberia uh, for historical reasons. But yes, uh, (laughs) generally speaking, we're going to be on the road for the whole time. Yeah. So the answer to Adam's question is they're capable talent wise, but probably not because it's really, really hard. Yes. Well said, (laughs) Daryl. It's really, really hard. (laughs) Um, But uh, it would be fun. I do think also maybe this is informed by me being terrified of Ghana. That's the other uh, like unspoken element here is I'm afraid of them. You never know. Imagine if the U.S. won their group and Ghana won their group, and that was the playoff that we uh, that we had. Yikes! Yikes! Yeah, ask Bob Bradley how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> it goes five 0 I believe. I know. believe that's what it was. That yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, many more questions. Yeah. You, do you have more to say on this? I do not. I was going to say many more questions still to come. 
Oh, well, let, let me do that then. Okay. Many more questions still to come. Oh, But first, today's show is sponsored by Podium Wear. You heard yeah, us talk is. about Podium Wear on yesterday's show. This is a family-owned business in St. Paul, Minnesota. Podium Wear is a custom team apparel manufacturer in Minnesota that is turning the world of team soccer kit ordering on its head. I mean, the kits come the right way up, right? You can still wear them like normal kits. <laughs> that would be awkward um, they, otherwise, yeah. They provide custom designs in a full line of soccer apparel, all made to order in their, in their St. Paul factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, in normal times, though, we would be talking about how great this process is, how easy they make it, how your experience ordering for your or your kids' club teams uh, will be made infinitely easier. We'll be talking about all those things, but it's not normal times. It's COVID times. Uh, because of the <laughs> COVID-19 crisis, Podium Wear has started making face masks for you to wear while you're out and about uh, on the sideline of a soccer match. I guess if you're like a Bundesliga official, maybe that would be possible. Even if you're doing your workouts, you can buy one for yourself. You can customize masks for a team, but they make it easy to get masks at a time when it's not always easy to get masks i've i've tried wearing a mask while running mm-hmm. i find it quite hard yeah mm-hmm. especially so, yeah especially if it's uh, maybe slightly too thick material yeah suddenly i feel like maybe i'm gonna pass out on that jog it comes to a premature conclusion <laughs> maybe you and i need a be- better oxygen volume yeah that's need to also work- probably true <laughs> Need to work on our volumes. Yeah. Um, I haven't been exactly mobile or active in the last month or so. So, yeah, that's almost certainly the case. As we mentioned, Podium Wear is family owned. They are friendly mm-hmm. and they're super easy to work with. And their facilities are all based in the US. So by supporting Podium Wear, you're supporting American manufacturing jobs. That is true. And they have completely retooled their factory, as we said, to provide those masks, which... I think is a pretty noble thing. So you can uh, go to podiumwear.com. You can get your custom mask today. Then you can bookmark them. So when you're ready to get your next uh, soccer kit for your soccer club, for your amateur team, if you're playing at like local level, maybe that's a route you want to go. Then you can bookmark them at podiumwear.com. Check them out today. Thank you to Podium Wear for sponsoring today's show. I agree. I agree with you. Thanks. (laughs) Next question, Taylor, Mm -hmm. comes from Daniel Nagler. Daniel Nagler says, I always wonder how good Everton could have been if they'd been able to hold on to some of their best players instead of selling them to bigger clubs. So, Daniel asks, if Everton had the finances they had today, and they are richer today than they were before, um, which players do you wish they could have kept? So, dear, do we want to do we want to get straight to the answer on this one or do we want to uh, uh, state anything up front on this well, question? I- I mean, I want to add the caveat that it's not yeah. all about money, right? I think a lot of the players that leave Everton, they're leaving because they want to play for essentially Champions League teams, right? right? So you could throw a lot of money at some of the big-name players that have been Everton, but they eventually want to go and play, play in the Champions League, play at the highest level. So I do think that's a consideration. But let's just, uh, to answer Daniel's question, let's kind of imagine a world where either these players are staying because they think Everton are going to be in the Champions League or these players are staying because Everton have so much money that they've managed to convince big-name players to stay. Mm -hmm. Which are the players that um, Everton kind of wish they could have held on to over the years? Instead of an imagining a reality, I sort of created one, which is like basically, let's say, Carlo Ancelotti took over and he had like two players magically back in the squad who were two players that I think under Carlo Ancelotti, who I think is the best manager they've had in quite some time, uh, who would maybe fit in the best or do the most. And with that in mind, my answer was two very recent departures or relatively recent, Idrissa Ganagé and Romelu Lukaku. I forgot about Idrissa Ganagé. He's good. He's quite good. 
He went to PSG uh, for those who, who forgot. But I think him as the holding midfielder, Ancelotti has tried to use Morgan Schneiderlin as well as a couple other people. Uh, Idrissa Ganage was the player who used to have that spot. I think if he were back in there, you'd get a more cohesive midfield. And then you had, uh, I think in some games, uh, Everton were going with a 4-4-2 with Richarlison partnering uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And Romelu Lukaku, uh, criticize him all you want, had some success at Everton, I think would be very good in partnership with Richarlison. I think they would complement each other well and I think that would work very well for Carlo Ancelotti. Very nice. I, I'm not going to quibble with either of those answers. I'm, I'm going to do it slightly differently. I'm not mm-hmm. imagining the current Carlo Ancelotti team. I'm imagining a past where in the early 2000s, Wayne Rooney had, instead of moving to ah. Manchester United, signed a long-term contract and spent his entire career with his boyhood team, Everton. I feel really bad that Everton got young, exciting Wayne Rooney for a very short period of time. And then they got sort of much older Wayne Rooney who didn't quite fit into the system (laughs) towards the end of his career. They never got peak Wayne Rooney. He gave it all to Manchester United. He did. So if he stays there, do you think that they... Like, is his star power enough? Is it a Diego Maradona situation? Or do you think because they have him, they're able to attract other big names to play alongside him? I'm imagining a beautiful future where Rooney stays and Rooney is so good. And he kind of was so good at 17, 18, 19, 20 um, that Everton are suddenly one of the top teams um, in the Premier League. I mean, they're almost there anyway, right? But now we're talking regular Champions League qualification. Then suddenly a lot more players are thinking, oh, I want to go and play for that team. I think if Rooney had stayed um, and Everton could have doubled down on that, that could have been um, a fork in the road where Everton become, you know, one of the established big four, five, six in England. (laughs) All right. It's a strange world and I keep putting like realistic spins on it about like, well, how would David Moyes use him? Oh, wait, he did and it didn't work that well. But you're not (laughs) going that route, so that's okay. So you've got Wayne Rooney. Who's your other player? Um, I would go John Stones. I Mostly because... I really like John Stones. I wish there were more English defenders in the John Stones mold. And I'm pretty confident Guardiola has made him initially a better player. Yeah. But he seems to have kind of broken him in the last year or two. Also that. Um, and I, I, part of me thinks that if he just stayed at Everton, he might have ended up in a better situation than he is now. He's 25 now as well. So we're really in a make or break kind of situation for John Stones. And I think, uh, and I'm, I'm going back to like my approach to this one, because I, I also think that if they were somehow able to get him back in real life, like he's had the discipline and the kind of instruction under Pep Guardiola, uh, they could go the Bayern route and then have uh, Carlo Ancelotti make him feel better. <laughs> like, and be the one to be nice and a buddy and sort of nurture him that way. Uh, and maybe that's what he would need to sort of uh, elevate them to that next level. So let's get Wayne Rooney in there from like when he was 19 years old. And then let's add John Stones somehow through physics, I'm going to say. So we've got Wayne Rooney, John Stones, Romelu Lukaku and Idrissa Gay. I mean, that's the basis of a really good team right there. I mean, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Across different eras, we somehow need to normalize them so they're all roughly mid-20s. Yeah, same I mean, time. and only half of them went on to play together at Manchester United. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. The the any any other players you wanted to mention there? Um, I kind of I was on a whole like local player kind of yeah. kick for a little bit, thinking that maybe it should be all local players. But I mean, seeing the player that Ross Barkley's become, it's been sort of the mm-hmm. the reverse John Stones, where Ross Barkley yep. really has become a much more um, responsible, mature, dependable player at Chelsea than he was at Everton. He clearly kind of wasn't happy towards the end at Everton, even though it's his boyhood club, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of wish that the Barkley thing had worked out. Maybe in my alternative reality, where Rooney had stayed to begin with, Everton would already be this big team and they'd have this reputation where you become a big star, you come mm. through the Everton system and then you become a big star. Maybe it makes more sense for Barkley to become the new Gaza um, in a blue shirt on Merseyside. 
Do we still get all of that plus Lennon Donovan being loaned in? Oh, yeah. I mean, that doesn't really, um, that doesn't really fit in with the, the parameters of the question, right? Cause they never sold Donovan. But yes, imagine that Rooney, Rooney Stang had made Everton such a big team that when Donovan and Tim Howard had played for them, mm. that they were playing for like perennial Champions League challengers. And I'm not talking about challenging that. for Champions League spaces. I'm talking about challenging for the Champions League. I would be fine with that uh, as well. That I'm getting carried in, away here. That is in fantasy world for <laughs> sure, because I'll bring us back to reality for a moment, because in, in researching this question, like, I think the bigger issue here uh, is not the players they've necessarily sold, um, and it's not even the players they've brought in, but it is the case that Everton have just had so much turnover. Since David Moyes left for United uh, in May 2013, they've had five permanent managers, two caretakers, and I think you can see that in their transfer policy, that every year for the last like four or five seasons, it's been a lot of names in and at least like eight or nine, sometimes 12 and 13 players leaving, and it's a lot of player brought in, plays two seasons, heads out and you see this squad that is very much a combination of a bunch of different managers visions for how they wanted to play and yeah. I think that's a massive limitation that it's not as though they've had one person there for seven seasons the way they used to and it was like oh if David Moyes hadn't sold blank maybe that team is stronger in this case it's like maybe if Ronald Koeman had kept this one but then that wouldn't have worked for Marco so like it's a very strange thing because of how many managers they've had oh, the toughies up the toffees, indeed. Next question. Uh, speaking of people with singular vision, not Zach Lippert, but the person he's asking about. Zach Lippert, how has the style of play differed between Pep Guardiola's last three teams? This is a really interesting question, and I really, really like it, because Guardiola's principles are broadly similar across his last three teams, and I'd never really thought about the differences until Zach mm-hmm. asked. And I would argue that essentially... Guardiola has tweaked things at each destination, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and Man City, to suit the players that he's got. I have, for each club, uh, the inspiration that was already there, and then the tweaks that he made. I literally have tweaks written down in my notes. (laughs) All right, so I'm going to give you my quick overview of what I think he's done. Sure. Um, Can we go team by team? Can we go team by team so I can Yeah, let's in? do it, yeah. Because cool. he's also made little tactical tweaks, just ideas that he's like copied or seen yep. or thought of along the way as well, right? Because this is, we're talking about um, more than a decade now, right? Like 13, 14 years of Guardiola being a coach at a high level. So he's also just had time to incorporate new ideas just based on him being around a long time and wanting to try new things. I mean, it's um, 2008, yeah, so 12 years, yeah. There you go, Yeah, 12 man. years, wow. yeah. So let's start with Barcelona. Let's, let's start it. with B- Barcelona. Um, they call it tiki-taka. He mm. doesn't like tiki-taka, right? Because tiki-taka implies just passing for no reason. But essentially, it's um, holding onto the ball, lots of possession, um, having Xavi, Iniesta, and Busquets move the ball around until things open up and then destroying opposition. Yeah, I mean, that, yes, that, that is the, the fundamental aspect. And it's basically uh, Michael Cox in his new book, Zonal Marking, which is excellent. Zach would definitely enjoy it. If, if this is the type of question Zach is asking, those are the types of questions that Michael Cox is, Cox is Wait, answering he, in that book. does he answer this specific question about how Guardiola has changed? Pretty much. Wow. <laughs> Pretty much exactly. Right. And it's essentially his sort of thesis, whether or not you choose to accept it, is that, like, it's all sort of, yeah, as you said, like, building on what was already there and kind of tweaking it to make it his own. And so with Barcelona... 
the like his his first three years as a manager. It's sort of inspired by that Cruyff Ajax dream team. So it's this like Spanish. Uh, Dutch team essentially that he ends up building where you have 4-3-3 but it's like the Regista instead of a number 10 you have center backs becoming midfielders the high line all that uh, sort of thing there but it's definitely inspired by Johan Cruyff basically is like the initial inspiration at Barcelona for sure. Okay so what changes when he goes to the Mm -hmm. Bundesliga? My my answer is because Lewandowski is there, and I believe Mandzukic is there to begin with, um, he goes a little more direct, right? I mm-hmm. would argue if you watch uh, Pep's Bayern Munich teams, there's a lot more just straight-up crosses into the box, like for Lewandowski headers, than you're ever going to see when there's like Messi as a false nine <laughs> mm-hmm. um, at Barcelona. I would also... I've got distinct memories of watching this Bayern team just go fairly direct as well. I've got a really specific memory of... Uh, you, I think we either watched it together or did a review show about it afterwards, but it was uh, Pep's Bayern against Klopp's Borussia Dortmund. And Dortmund were doing a whole complicated, intense pressing thing. And Boateng would just lift balls right over the top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, like big long balls over the top yep. of the entire Dortmund team. Yeah, <laughs> for, that, Levin, yeah right. for Lewandowski and others to, to run onto. So essentially, there's a lot more to it. There's like, uh, there's, he starts messing around with, uh, fullbacks coming in to play as extra central midfielders like he does with Philip Lahm, right? More on that in a minute. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's one big innovation that happens at Bayern Munich. But the basic thing I would argue is at Bayern, he, goes a lot more vertical, basically. Not all the time, but he's much more willing to go vertical at Bayern than he is at Barcelona. I think the thing that I've come to realize about Pep Guardiola, and it's why I do think he is, uh, if not the best manager of the last 30 years, then certainly one of them, is that he is very specific about his beliefs, but at the same time, when it comes to soccer, his philosophy, but also isn't married to that necessarily. And so, like, yeah, when he goes to Bayern Munich, he still is going to bring in the sort of, like, aspects that he's come up with and, and been familiar with, but that at the same time is going to look at what he has. And he looks at Robert Lewandowski and thinks, you're not a false nine. Uh, Mario Götze is, and so I'll use him in that situation. But you're going to be better in just kind of direct situations and getting balls into your feet in the box. So I'm going to make that happen. So, yeah, I think you're right that he wasn't afraid. Not even afraid, but just he was willing to go more vertical and more direct uh, at Bayern Munich for sure than he would have been at Barcelona. Yeah, so I mentioned Philip Lahm, mm-hmm. sort of uh, fullbacks like stepping, becoming central and being almost like midfielders. And you said you had more to say on that. I do, and I am gonna, I'm gonna kind of like this is all credit to Michael Cox here because basically Guardiola comes in and sees his two fullbacks are David Alaba and uh, uh, um, shoot, Philip Lahm. I wanted to say Philip Neuer for some reason. The, That's guy the just keeper. Yeah, Philip Lahm and David Alaba. But what he comes to realize is essentially they're too good to just be fullbacks. Uh, and meanwhile, he had figured out at Barcelona that one of his vulnerabilities was those fullbacks using them very aggressively in attack leaves tons of space to get counterattacked. And he, he basically says at this point, he comes away fundamentally changing his understanding of fullback because he was always like, oh, you just stay on that side. But when he creates these overloads, if he has the, the two fullbacks move centrally because Lama and Alaba are capable of that, he effectively has a 2-3-3-2 two, three, three, two formation, which kind of checks every single box Pep Guardiola wants. Uh, he has those wingers who can play wide but cut inside. It allows him to have kind of two focal attacking units but still keep numbers back. And it's where he starts to adapt but find that adaptation can cause massive problems problems for opposition. The other thing I remember f- about Pep's buy-in is constant formation changes. Yep. And not even not in a bad way, more I'm I'm assuming it was more just to suit the personnel he selected and the opposition he was up against, but it wasn't I feel like Barcelona you could pretty consistently predict the shape yep. of his Barcelona team. Bayern week to week, I'm not sure I could predict um, exactly how they were going to line up. 
You could predict kind of what the what the style of play would be, but you couldn't predict exactly how everybody would be initially positioned. Yeah, and I think it's the luxury of how strong that team is. That if you're beating your domestic competition to the point where what they win the Bundesliga in like March or whatever, yeah. like it affords you the opportunity to mess around and try different things. And sometimes that bites you, like when you try to man mark the entire Barcelona team. Uh, but sometimes it doesn't, like when you knock out other stronger uh, opponents in the Champions League because you did something completely unexpected, which he would certainly do on occasion. All right, let's move us on to Manchester City. Sure. This is where I I'm having trouble. Um, differentiating between a lot of the tactical innovations he made at Bayern and the tactical mm-hmm. innovations at Manchester City. I will say the image, I'm hoping Michael Cox had a lot to say because I don't necessarily have a lot to say about the Manchester City um, setup. The image I have in my head of what Pep's doing at Man City um, is there's no more Lewandowski, right? It's Sergio Aguero um, who's already there when he gets there and he adds Gabriel Jesus later on. But it's a lot of getting to the end line and cutting mm-hmm. balls back for finishes on the penalty spot. That's the pattern of play I keep seeing from this Manchester City team. Is that unique to Guardiola at Man City or does that exist previously in his career? It exists to some extent at Barcelona, though more often that front three was like sort of trying to get in behind or get on the end of through balls that eventually were passed yeah. through. Um, but you do have them playing wider. Here is where he at. It's like really is uh, chalk on the boots. I think it's Raheem Sterling on the right. He's right footed. It's Leroy Sané on the left. He's left footed. You stay on. You stay out wide, and then it, you see that kind of dedicated focus on not even necessarily getting to the end line, but it's those sort of direct balls across the six-yard box between like the six and the 12 to either find Sergio Aguero, who is the leading scorer, not surprisingly, because of some of what Guardiola does, or you find your opposite winger who's cutting inside to be on the end of that ball. But yeah, that's a big sort of adjustment because he looks at this team and thinks, I have the talent to attack wide, but then I also have the talent through the middle because he starts using uh, David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne centrally, and that allows him to sort of, again, get the best out of a varied squad. The thing that keeps striking me as well is even though he's spent some money wherever he's been because he's Mm -hmm. been at big teams and they have money to spend, he still ends up using a lot of the pieces that were already there, right? Mm -hmm. Like Lewandowski at Bayern or Aguero and Kevin De Bruyne at Manchester City. These guys were already there when he arrived and he kind of builds them into, builds the team around them. So there are, I agree, and uh, there are notable exceptions to that, but those tend to be when it's obviously not going to work or it's just that he has to kind of like put his foot down. Uh, Joe Hart would be the obvious example of he looks at Joe Hart and thinks, yeah, you're not a sweeper keeper. You're not playing out of the back. Bye bye. And that's at yeah. the time when he is England's number one. But like contrast that with Thomas Muller at Bayern Munich. Like he finds a way to get the best out of Thomas Muller. Uh, and this is that time period where he coins that term Ramdeuter, I think it is. Like Ramdeuter, yeah. Basically, he tells Pep Guardiola in their, yeah, exactly, in their first meeting, like, I don't really want any responsibility. And, for some players, I think Pep Guardiola would have said, like, all right, well, bye. But that's an example of where he stuck with it and found a way because he did see that footballing intellect. And I think that's the number one thing he looks for. Did Muller ever play under Louis van Gaal? I think so. I wonder how that went down. Also a fair question. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a bit more rigid. <laughs> so at Man City, mm. you also see um, for, sometimes fullbacks coming inside, right? We've seen a lot of that. At Manchester City. I've also seen a thing of centre backs stepping into midfield, yep. right? There's a lot of, I've seen, uh, like John Stones, for example, would like play a ball or Vincent Company would play a ball. And then like Kyle Walker would come inside and form a back three, but then Company or Stones or whomever would then be part of central midfield. So there's a weird like tactical 
um, defender into midfield switch up that I think we see more of at Man City than anywhere else. I think you're correct. I mean, we, we did see with Barcelona, like we would see Gerard Pique obviously like stepping in and, and doing some things. But yeah, for the most part, I think you see more attacking play from the center backs. But that's also because, like, as, as I've talked about a lot, I don't know why this has been so much on my mind, but I think it's because on some of our weekend review shows, Ryan, specifically, I'm throwing Ryan under the bus here, would talk about Pep using those midfielders as defenders. And in reading more about it, like that that's not a thing that he was just doing that's because his argument was in my system with how high that line is they're effectively central midfielders and not yeah. center backs so why would i use a center back yeah, this in a goes spot back, this goes all the way back to Mascherano playing center back exactly. at barcelona yeah i mean you and yaya torre in his first season he does it yeah. again when he moves to man city all right so i think we've done a pretty good job mm-hmm. of uh like spelling out some of the differences um it's it's mostly similar but with lots of interesting little differences i think is yes. the best way to uh, to explain what guardiola's done over his uh, the course of his three different teams mm-hmm. two more questions to go taylor i've yes, just sir. looked at them they're both a little more personal mm-hmm. in nature which is fitting because we have a slightly more personal um <laughs> advertiser <laughs> today's show is sponsored by Roman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roman is uh, for people who have a condition like erectile dysfunction. If you want treatment uh, for erectile dysfunction, Roman is the way to go. You don't need to wait to see a doctor. You don't mm-hmm. have to do an in-person visit. This is treatment you can do via telemedicine because our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state or from the comfort of home, which is quite useful right now. Yeah, and especially like like comfort of home, but when it's such an like potentially awkward topic or a thing that you know I, I think i said this before but when you walk in and you got the receptionist there and the, and the crowded waiting room you want to be like i'm here for erectile dysfunction like i don't know you i think you'd probably rather you deal with that from, from the privacy of your own home the, do you have to tell the receptionist while you're there you have to tell the receptionist your medical condition yeah and you have to do it while you're completely naked in front of your high school wow, is that just American, a dream that i've had is that american is that not real? crazy <laughs> Give it time. We'll get there. Um, but all you need to do for Roman, uh, grab your phone or your computer. You complete a free online visit. You'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust, adjust excuse me, your mm-hmm. treatment plan. That's right. So uh, if you're struggling with uh, erectile dysfunction, go to GetRoman.com slash TSS. That's GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. One more time, that's GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Thank you to Roman for sponsoring today's Total Soccer Show. Mm-hmm. All right. Two more questions. As you said, the first comes from Kenneth Seiden. Uh, Gianni Infantino just ruled that all soccer podcasts must stop and podcasters no lo- longer work in soccer media. Whoa. Well, that's, that's a bummer. That's a that's bummer. A Didn't know that had happened. Uh-huh. Uh, we're going to say that's a hypothetical. However, each former podcaster gets to handpick their new job in soccer. What job do Taylor and Daryl choose? Ooh, okay. I'm going to go first then since you mm-hmm. asked the question. If I could choose any job in the entire world... Honestly, U.S. Men's National Team head coach. Okay. That is the job I would take. But I don't think that's a realistic choice, right? I don't have coaching qualifications or experience. It's any job you want, Daryl. You handpick your new job. The media would be on me fast. That is (laughs) probably true. 
much as I think I know about soccer, Plus I know that foreigner. I would not do a great job running coaching sessions for professional <laughs> soccer players, for example. I mm. don't think I would necessarily succeed as US men's national team head coach. <laughs> so I've gone for a job that I hope I might at least be decent enough to keep it at, mm. <laughs> right, to ma- maintain employment. I would love to be a scout. Oh, I think I, I have a scout as well. I think I could be a scout, and but I want a double. I want a double responsibility. I want to be sent out to compile dossiers on potential new signings. You know, so mm. I go out and watch the player do strengths, weaknesses, tendencies. This is what this player likes to do. This is how they do it. Um, I'd also like to be an opposition scout, where I get sent to watch opposition teams in action and do sort of a profile of this team that we're going to be playing like mm-hmm. I, I love doing the research i love watching and you know like trying to figure out what's going on and i also think it'd be a good way to uh, to travel on the dime of a soccer team i have more or less the same answer except mine would be <laughs> i want to be an advanced scout for the u.s men's national team uh and i would like to be their scout for Concacaf, as in traveling to Concacaf countries to scout opposition but also sort of like be the fixer like when you get there and figure out like what is the best hotel hey there's rain on the training pitch don't make a big deal about it that sort of thing <laughs> um because i do like travel uh but i also like a little bit of grit with my travel and i feel like going around to like honduras to figure out the best place for the united states to stay there's going to be a little bit of risk in there and, and, yeah. I, and i'm down for that one so that was that was one of my answers and then having read a whole bunch about uh, pep guardiola I, w- I wouldn't mind being an assistant for pep i think i'd get yelled at a whole bunch and be kind of terrified <laughs> the whole time but you would learn a whole bunch so you're going scout slash travel agent? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I like it. I think it's really good. Yeah. <laughs> just just ain't even like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be in Jamaica on Wednesday, and then I've got to like hop over to Curacao, but I'll be back on Saturday. That, that oh, seems yeah. like a schedule I could handle. There's some nice, there's some nice luxury travel involved there as well, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, probably with, with the places that U.S. soccer would be staying in. Probably not the same ones that I uh, individually would be staying in um, in my real life. Yeah, well, maybe you could build in some little vacations on the side. That's true. That's yeah. true. That's possible. Um, and then I had what? one more answer that yeah, was... Yeah. I think with, it's important to find out other jobs we might be qualified for. It, it's just that like this one, I, I do think it is media related, but I, it's not a podcast. I'm just going to say like my ideal honest answer, like in purpose of this question, it is the scouting thing. But I would say you and I could do a very good version of what Carragher and Neville do in Monday Night Football, where it's basically tactics, interviews, in-depth discussions, but you have TV rights to kind of show what you're talking mm, about a bit more. Yeah. Uh, I would very much enjoy that. I would do that too. Yeah, put me down for that. Um, I know that sounds very arrogant to say that, like, you and I could do the thing that these two guys who are legends in English soccer and are very good at what they do, we could do that too. But it's it's what we enjoy the most. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I like the idea of another job in media that... That could uh, that could mm-hmm. go pretty well, yeah. yeah. And especially with the media rights, that's. I, I mean, I think I might quit right. this job to do that job now. <laughs> Can I go too? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, okay, I'll cool. take you with me. I'll take okay. you, with me. you take me with um, you. Thank you. <laughs> any other jobs that you think we'd be qualified for? Like, could we be agents, for example? Uh, food, uh, poisoning tester. I could. I could do that pretty well. <laughs> Co- I mean, court court jester in the medieval style, maybe that. Who would need a poisoning tester? I don't know. Who, who's who's very who's very unpopular? I don't know <laughs> any of the U.S. soccer officials, maybe. Ooh, <laughs> too far. Uh, I, I don't know agents. I think the thing is, you and I, we're we're a little bit ruthless, but I, I don't know if we have the level of like. Like, just kind of pure greed to be the super agent. Maybe like a, a Neville Neville style agent is, is yeah. maybe where I could kind of handle it a bit more. I do. I like the idea of like a less high profile agent where your job is really like 
taking care of players in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, especially like players who have just come to the US. You sort of like help them get settled, help show them the roads. There, there is like a very, um, there's a nice version of an agent where it's not the Mino Raiola version. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's the version that's best friends with uh, Nuno Espirito Santo. That's all you need. <laughs> all right. I'm going to move us on to the next question. Sure. Um, Gary Mauk asks, what are some of your favorite cleats that you have used? I am looking to get a new pair and would love to hear some suggestions on the brands or styles that you guys enjoy using. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got uh, three answers, all of them Adidas, because that is my, my, my preferred soccer shoe. Uh, Copa Mundial is the, the old standard. It's hard to kind of find the classic version sometimes, but I, was always, I would always go classic. If you can't find that, the Adidas Copa 20.1 cleats, uh, all black, of course, are, are, are pretty solid replacements. Why Adidas? Why do you lean Adidas all the time? I, I don't really know. I think it's or? just it's it's. Uh, I think it fits my foot pretty well. Uh, I think I have wide feet with like fairly high arches, and I think Adidas are good for that. Whereas the like the bottom of Nikes tend to be for narrower feet, and I think they're like a little bit more high performance, which means they don't always hold up as well in my experience. Whereas I think Adidas, you get what you pay for, and the two times I have spent like a lot of money, at least for me, a lot of money uh, for shoes. One was for like the very new version of the Copas, and those lasted a really long time. The other ones, the most money I've ever spent on shoes were the Adizero F50 TRX All Blacks. Again, I go All Black. Um, and those are probably my favorite shoes I've ever worn. Uh, they're the most expensive, but they lasted like four years, which is really wow. good for soccer. Is, um, yeah. And like that was in like rainy, muddy conditions, and it's not as though I took particularly great care of them, but they held up <laughs> and they were awesome. So if you can find Adizero zero f50 trx all blacks go for those how do you mind if i ask how much they were i think they what? were well it was it was uh when my, my friend was managing a store uh the I secret shop, shop owner so they were discounted i think they retailed for like 220 230 something like okay that. so not mm. crazy crazy expensive not like I mean, a, it might have been 250 i think was the list price i see, I see it's I a see. lot it's a lot but it was um, not nearly that much otherwise i would not have been able to, to uh to justify that one yeah, well, for four years, actually, in hindsight, you would, mm-hmm. right? But at yeah, the time, yeah, I guess that's true. It's a lot, yeah. Um, so I deliberately have no brand loyalty. Um, I kind of feel like the shape and size of soccer cleats tend to just move around too much for mm-hmm. me to stick with any one brand. Yep. But I found that the thing that works for me, because I've got quite wide feet, um, and I, I think I blister easily as well, um, I always go kangaroo leather and as wide as possible. Those are the mm-hmm. two the two things that, uh, that I look for. Um, and I'll basically just go into a store and look... For, based on those two things, kangaroo leather and as wide as possible, and just see what they've got in stock that will do that for me. That's led to me recently wearing um, some Adidas Adipure, mm-hmm. um, some Nike Premiers, and some Diodora Brazils I really enjoyed uh, maybe three years ago or so. You were rocking Tiempos at one point too, weren't you? Uh, for indoor, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I've got some Tiempos for indoor, cause, again, because they were nice and wide. <laughs> you know what? Nike Nike for indoor and for field turf, I think, is really good. I wear Nikes in indoor, now that I think about it. Yes, I do too, yeah, pretty regularly, yeah. I can't, I, honestly, I got the Nike Tiempo one time, and I'm constantly chasing that same shape, mm-hmm. but it keeps... I, I really feel, I get annoyed with brands that keep sort of... They'll bring out a, a shoe, with like a new line of the same shoe, but it's a different mm-hmm. shape. So it's almost like just the look of it is one thing that attracts people, but the actual shape of it is completely different. And then you have to find what the new shape is that fits you. And for me, yeah. it's become Nike, the new, Nike Tiempo has now become, for me, Nike Premier because they both happen to have that same wide-ish shape that mm. suits me. Yeah, It's not an ideal uh, situation where the, the models don't, don't stay consistent. 
Yeah, but I think the models don't stay consistent because then you can't release a new one every single year. But as a result, you tend to get a lot of bells and whistles or bumps. Do you remember that whole like period of time when they put bumps on the shoes for control? And maybe that has an actual effect, but to me that just feels like another thing that you're paying money for because it looks different. <laughs> uh, so I think you're correct, Daryl, that though I have like that little bit of loyalty, I would say the most important thing is just put the shoe on. And yes. if it feels really good, then that's the shoe for you. I will say there's something to aesthetics in that, like, I, I can't bring myself to wear, like, bright red or bright pink shoes. And it's not – like, I like color. Don't get me wrong. It's just that that feels too flamboyant for me, a person who grew up playing, like, right midfield and right defense and, like, central defensive midfielder. It just feels a little bit too flashy. And that is also because I played for a club where you weren't allowed to have bright, colorful shoes. They oh, had yeah, to be yeah. black, which probably informs my, my current uh, opinions <laughs> on shoes. I'm I'm with you. I tend to go um, as black as possible because it mm-hmm. just feels like the classic. I think that might just be our age as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'll wear. That is I'll wear like, true. I've had the the uh, Diodoro Brazils were all silver, uh-huh. for example, but it didn't feel that flashy, so I was weirdly okay with it. But yeah, I can't see me ever having like bright pink with like Jackson Pollock splashes of paint all over them. Mm-hmm. Those Diodoro Silvers, though, I, no, I couldn't either. The, the Silvers, in my mind, don't count as much, especially the ones you had, because they're just sort of a conventional shoe that is also silver. Yeah. Like, they don't have the the no laces, the hidden laces, or the lacing on the side with a bunch of, like, texture and patterns on them. It was just sort of like, a shoe that's shiny. And I yeah. think that's kind of fine. It's still pretty much no frills, whereas the yeah, other ones are just a bit too, like, look at me! I'm gonna do 14 stepovers, and then <laughs> get the ball tackled off me <laughs> the thing i would say to gary is honestly whatever feels comfortable right mm-hmm. you just gotta especially if you um if if you're not sure what your what your shape or your brand or your size is or you should know your size mm-hmm. if you're not sure what your shape or your brand or your comfort level is yeah try on a load of them and see what feels right uh, it is the case though it's it's been mathematically proven that white shoes do make you faster that is true <laughs> Everyone knows that, right? I really kind that. of used to believe that a little bit. Wow, what? Why did you believe <laughs> not that? Really that they, not really that they made you faster, is that I felt faster. Because it's like, you're used to like like black shoes, and so when you got white shoes, it suddenly feels like I'm, I'm moving like the flash, it's a blur. I don't know why. It just made me feel faster. I remember the first time I had them was when we were playing together, uh, was with Richmond City, like way back when. And I had white shoes, and I played on the wing, and felt incredibly fast, and like nobody could keep up with me, even though everyone could pretty readily keep up with me. I must not have noticed, otherwise. <laughs> we would not have become friends <laughs> did you yell it feels like you're running at an incredible rate harry i did is that was that now what i was supposed to yell i think that's exactly what you should <laughs> okay good 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 <laughs> all right thank you to everybody for today's questions if you've got a question for us please send it via totalsoccershow.com slash questions coming up in the next couple of days um there's going to be total Soccer Show book club uh, mm. me and george Koreshi will be talking about chapter two of the age of football it's all about soccer in the middle east in the 21st century that will be released thursday evening friday taylor i think we're planning to do um another historical mm-hmm. matchup but it may depend on what happens with the Bundesliga, right? If we have a schedule and we know the dates, we we may start looking into all of that as well. Maybe we can do it all. Maybe we can do it all. I think we'll have to because we got some games left in this competition. Yeah, we do. It's still still the first round, right? We might have to uh, escalate the number of games we talk about on on each show to make sure we get through it to at least uh, through at least the first round. Okay. And oh, have you checked in on the um, the votes for Real Madrid versus Liverpool? No, I have not. I checked in just before, and I'm not going to say exactly how it's going, so I don't want to sort of encourage one fan base or another. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very, very even. It was like okay. it was like uh, it was closer than the Brexit vote. Put it that way. <laughs> okay, 
I, I, I guess that's good, even though that's not a vote I particularly enjoy. Um, and I should add, just to clarify, um, we are going to like finish the whole tournament. What I meant was we should get through the first round because the first round is going to be the one that probably takes longer since we're introducing all these teams. Once we get to the knockout round yeah. or the next round, it's a little bit easier to go straight into the tactical approaches of the teams and I mean, yeah, how yeah. they might uh, clash. Yeah, and to give a peek behind the curtain, we really are doing the work on these teams, right? We're watching mm-hmm. a lot of footage and really getting a feel for every team um, yep. as we watch them. Reading a lot as well, but I think watching mm-hmm. is the the key thing. We've really done the research so that we can profile these teams um, correctly and thoroughly. I don't know how much footage I'm going to be watching of Hanved from the 1950s, but I'm going to try. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be high definition. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> all right, Taylor Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening. And George and I will talk to you tomorrow.